Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. You might have noticed a short absence, but rest assured we're back with a weekly podcast now. I'm Fraser Myers, and I'm joined by Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week, we'll be asking if we should say yes to a no-deal Brexit, is Me Too eating itself, and if campus politics has come to Westminster. The, the possibility of a no-deal uh, is uncomfortably high at this point, yes. Shortages in the supermarkets, empty supermarket shelves. You will still be able to enjoy a BLT after Brexit. The army will be on standby to distribute food and medicine. They didn't put that on the side of a big red boss, did they? It's literally about the entire nation stockpiling spam and on bongo. It is not what we want, and it's not what we expect. But we must be ready. The last few weeks have been full of warnings that Britain is perilously close to the cliff edge. Crashing out of the EU without a deal, we're told, could bring chaos, threatening supplies of everything from sandwiches to sperm. One EU official even claimed that there would be no economic activity in the UK after Brexit. But is no deal really something to fear? I don't think that it is if what you recognise Brexit is about is not about economics, it's not about stability, it's about delivering on what the people voted for, which is bringing democracy back home, if you like, retaking control of the nation back from the European Union and trying to kind of rejuvenate democratic politics in this country. I think the whole thing about the no deal debate, apart from the ridiculous scaremongering we've seen, I mean, everything from claims that we were going to get super gonorrhea epidemics alongside, as you say, there was going to be some sort of shortage of sperm because apparently we import that at this point, which is quite interesting. (laughs) Um, Brexit for Leave voters was never about economics. And if you look at the polls after the vote, the Ashcroft polls, for example, as little as 5% of Leave voters said their main reason for voting Leave was economics. And I think that's actually really quite striking when you think about the kind of class dimension to the Leave vote as well. It's something in the region of 60% of people in um, what are called routine or non-routine jobs in the jargon uh, voted Leave. These are the very people who again the kind of rearguard remain campaigners are saying are going to be hurt by no deal yet they always went into this with their eyes wide open which is to say that brexit is not going to be easy it's going to be difficult it's going to mean a bit of a rocky road ahead but some things are more important representation democracy is more important so no i don't think no deal was anything to fear it's not to say it's going to be a walk in the park but it's nothing to fear because what we voted for was not more of the same was not a smooth road just for the sake of it it was about something a lot more radical and daring than that and i think that's actually what people are afraid of when they fearmonger about no deal obviously people recognized that there were some economic drawbacks to brexit or there'd be some economic uncertainty But it seems quite clear that people really aren't buying the scare stories of late. So there hasn't been queues of people, you know, in supermarkets stocking up on baked beans. There hasn't even been a dent in consumer confidence or anything like that. I mean, you know, so is this just Project Fear 2.0? I think so. I think most people have their heads screwed on and know that just as we had the total panic from the Remain campaign before the vote, 
let's not forget David Cameron talking about World War Three being <laughs> one of those scare stories. You know, ISIS, we were, that was a good one. Yeah, we were told that there was going to be economic Armageddon and it didn't materialise. In fact, actually, I think the economy's taken a very minute upturn um, since Brexit. The, the, the figures are not necessarily disastrous. But there was a really brilliant essay on Spiked by the economist Phil Mullen, which talked about why no deal wasn't anything to fear in economic terms for three key reasons. First, what you just said, Tom, there, that people already knew that this was going to be a risk and they took it. The second one is one I think that really needs to be reiterated is that the problems with Britain's economy are long standing and no deal, deal, whatever happens. The issue of productivity in this country, as Phil very clearly lays it out, is something that needs to be addressed. It's a domestic challenge. Productivity flatlining is a domestic challenge. It doesn't necessarily relate to membership of the single market. It doesn't relate to WTO rules. It doesn't relate to any of these scare stories. So if we want to get serious about (laughs) making Britain's economy better, actually, as Phil outlines it in his third point, is that Brexit and change and shaking things up is a good thing. If you have an economy that is afraid of change, that's not a good thing. And so, you know, aside from all of the points that are the key points about democracy, the economy needs a shake-up and Brexit is a brilliant opportunity to do that. Clearly, actually, no deal presents opportunities, especially when you think about at the stage we're at in the negotiations with Theresa May's checkers strategy being a big disappointment for most Leave voters. Is no deal, in fact, the only deal that's acceptable, that's on the table for Brexit voters? It it certainly seems like that. I think, in a way, from the perspective of a Brexiteer or just a Democrat, no deal is increasingly looking like the only practical way in which you can deliver on this vote. Um, That is not to say that anyone that anyone went into this process saying that we didn't want a deal from the off. But given that combination of EU intransigence tearing up, mocking any proposal that has been put on the table, combined with the government's willingness to just kind of trade away our sovereignty over this process to the point where you get the checkers deal, which is effectively in the single market for goods, and at the same time actually having less control over those rules than we had in the first place. I mean, this is a plan that even Nick Clegg came out and called the vassal state (laughs) option. Um, So I think that tells us everything we need to know about that on the political level if anything is going to get make its way through the house of commons we're at the point now because of all the factions and all of the infighting and the overall point which is the fact that the vast majority of mps something like 75 percent of them voted remain that it's not just that the checkers deal can't make it its way through parliament which it can't but really no particular offer will make its way through parliament such as the kind of rats fighting in a sack nature of our of westminster at the moment so i think on obviously it's a question of delivering on the vote fundamentally and it's increasingly clear that no deal is a the only way in which that can definitely be delivered on that's why it's so important as a red line is to say there are certain things we just won't trade away but also on the question of if we do want to have one last stab at getting a good negotiating position then saying that we are that we're not effectively just going to chain ourselves to the negotiating table and leave as soon as we get something it just seems to me to be the only practical as well as the only real principled offer at this point and in terms of the political gridlock i i mean one of the Groups of people who seem to be making real hay out of this are the Remainers. And the People's Vote campaign seems to be looking stronger than ever. It's something that, you know, sounded ridiculous when it was first mooted. But now you hear every day some new rich capitalist or sports star or something has signed up to the People's Vote and wants to overturn the first referendum with a second referendum. Mm. 
What do you make of that development? I mean, there's something really sinister about the people's vote. One of the examples that really shocked me was when they were really celebrating the news that Airbus was going to leave the UK if there was a no deal, meaning the, you know, the sacking of thousands of people, people losing their jobs. And Remainers were like, ha ha, see, you're delighting in the prospect of British workers being made redundant. But I would question there or, or kind of be hesitant about how much support they're getting. So there were these polls that came out which said that, yes, more people were getting fed up with Brexit and were considering changing their mind on Brexit because of what Brexit has become. As Tom has just said, it's become this incredibly warped, uh, watered down, you know, Brexit in name only kind of thing that only a no deal would solve. I don't like what Brexit has become and I voted leave and I'm, you know, along with the people in this room, a very <laughs> hardline Brexiteer. So I would be very cautious about saying that the people's vote is getting support. That's what they're trying to make out as doing. And certainly they've got loud voices. They've got big bucks behind them. You know, they are they are well funded. They are well organised, but they do not have the fundamental support of British voters because people still want Brexit. Mm. And they are also just spinning nothing really when they talk about that there's been this kind of upsurge in support i mean there was a analysis which sir john curtis put out this week looking at all of the various polls asking if people want a second referendum and the point he makes is that you get entirely different answers when you word the question slightly differently i mean one perfect example of that is best for britain which i think is associated with the people's vote certainly a sister organization led by uh, gina miller who's the kind of front woman of it they put out a poll back in april which they heralded as oh look people have changed their minds they actually asked two questions the first question asked people do you want a public vote on the deal and people said no we don't the second one said would you like a final say and they said yes we would and we all know which one they picked for the top line of their press release so there is a bit of nonsense in this Definitely. And I think the point that Ella makes is really key insofar as if you look at the people <laughs> who are fronting this, it's quite clear they don't really care about the public and changing any of those people's minds. I mean, in your introduction, Fraser, you kind of hinted at there was one character who came out a couple of weeks ago in favour of a people's vote. Um, who was one of the co-founders of Superdry, Julian Dunkerton, da- donated a million pounds to the campaign. It uh, didn't take people much Googling <laughs> to realise uh, one of the things to his name is that his company paid Indian workers, you know, the princely sum of 28 pence an hour in order to make their clothes. When people look at these people, they don't see someone with their best interests at heart. And I think the kind of rose galleries, as you say, kind of capitalists, disgraced politicians, Lovies, the bald guy from What the Week, these are not people who are going to change anyone's <laughs> mind fundamentally because I don't think they're interested in that, actually. I think they're interested in trying to, as much as they can, kind of energise a Remainer base and just put more and more pressure on the political class who would, frankly, like any kind of way out to kind of just put a bit more wind at their sails. I think that's mainly what they're interested in, probably. What do you mean Alistair Campbell doesn't have my best interests? <laughs> <laughs> that. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Please be sure to give us a rating and a review. It really helps us reach new people. Up next, Me Too. Back in October last year, floods of allegations against the movie mogul Harvey Weinstein sparked the Me Too movement. Many celebrities have since been brought down by the hashtag campaign. But now, the first woman to publicly accuse Weinstein, the filmmaker Asia Argento, finds herself accused of sexual misconduct. So is Me Too starting to eat its own? a real mess so she is the leader of me too one of the leaders along with rose mcgowan she is capitalized on the me too movement so greatly she's been kind of giving speeches at awards shows uh 
her Twitter following has soared, you know, all these things. She's she's about the fact that she claims that she had uh, an experience with Harvey Weinstein that amounted to rape in her case. Then this news breaks that Jimmy Bennett, a young actor who was very young when he was in a film with her, um, was paid off by her ex-boyfriend, um, the now deceased Anthony Bourdain, a significant sum of money. Who knows why? Uh, Asia Argento says it was just sort of to help him out, but actually Jimmy Bennett claims that it was a sexual harassment claim. So the victim has now become the accused. And lots of Me Too supporters have come out and denounced her. Now, you could sit back and say, great, told you so, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Actually, I don't think this is a good thing because yet again, the presumption of innocence is not valued. Uh, the whole story is not known. Who knows what went on there? You don't have the details of the case. And it's assumed that Asia is is guilty and should be shamed. I don't think that's right. And I would hope that at the very least, this gives her a lesson in, you know, practicing caution when it comes to these kind of accusations. Ella makes a good point about how, despite the fact there is um, a certain level of kind of schadenfreude or something in relation to this particular case um what's been shocking about it actually is the fact that many of the prominent me too people have actually been forced to whilst initially responding to it as if to say i think rose mcgowan tweeted something to the extent of be gentle we don't know all the facts of the case and then obviously when she was met with a barrage of responses saying why didn't you say that <laughs> after all these other allegations were made and people were smeared on the basis of allegation alone but actually the fact that she deleted that tweet and I think the fact that so many other people in the movement such as it is have actually felt the need, whether they deep down believe it or not, to say, of course, standards are standards and maintain it shows that there is still a lot of momentum behind this particular movement. Um, but it is an important, at the very least, I think was a moment of reflection, which hopefully will spark a bit more of a discussion, which is to say that in the discussion of sexual harassment, this tendency of believing all the victims, believe all women in particular, was always going to be incredibly corrosive, that you can think at the same time that statistically it is incredibly unlikely for women to allege um, sexual harassment assault rape when it didn't actually happen but that doesn't mean that women never lie those are two very different points and I think the unfortunately the trajectory of the Me Too movement at the moment was this kind of quasi-Victorian idea that men are devils and women are angels and I think we're, we're seeing how corrosive that can be to the concept of justice and the concept of individuals being able to defend themselves and that's why it is coming back to bite some of the people who led it in the first place it seems. Thinking of some of the people who were accused, um, one example was Ed Westwick, and he actually lost work. He had a BBC TV series kind of cancel him at the last minute, actually reshoot some scenes without him. But now, only recently, the charges against him have been dropped. So you can kind of see how corrosive this rush to judgment is, what happens when we you know, destroy the presumption of, of innocence. And, you know, kind of six months later down the line, we get slightly closer to the truth, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's a stain on you that is very hard to rub out an accusation like that. Something as serious as sexual harassment or rape, which is not a kind of light thing to accuse someone of. It makes people think, oh, well, there must have been some cause or at the very least, he must have been a sleaze bag or a pig. And maybe none of these things are true. Maybe he is a complete angel. Maybe he is a pig, You, but you don't know. The point is by allowing... Uh, the presumption of innocence to be trashed in this way, what you're really saying is that we don't have trust in people and that we don't trust people's word. I mean, one of the key things that's come out of this is the total 
blurring of the lines of uh, bad behaviour, of which I would say all of us have been guilty of at some point in our lives. If you've had, (laughs) if you've had a semi-explorative sexual life, you will have made a mistake at some point. Um, And there's this sort of really dark desire to bring out those sort of often uh, historical mistakes and events that perhaps weren't wholly positive and bring them up as this abusive traumatic content so and it's being it's rehashing what could or could not have been bad sexual experiences into serious criminal accusations that doesn't do anything good specifically for women i think that's the point i really want to hammer home is that out of this we're being painted as incapable of dealing with sexual freedom and uh and risk in sex that is a road that we've been down that's a reactionary point of view that we've fought against throughout history we don't want to go back there so one person who was kind of felled by the me too movement was aziz ansari but as you as you were kind of alluding to this um was only bad behavior he was never accused of a crime he wasn't accused of sexual assault or anything bad he is basically accused of being impolite in the bedroom, essentially, from reading the kind of accounts, the the allegations against him. And yet he has recently tried to make a comeback. And many people on Twitter have made very clear how unhappy they are with this. You know, there seems to be still this desire to see him punished in some way, to see his career completely ended, as if putting it on hold is not bad enough. No, completely. And I think the first point on Aziz Ansari is that the Me Too movement gave us this whole new category, which wasn't about harassment, which is off in and of itself hard to define, wasn't about assault, wasn't about rape. Sexual misconduct, that was what was levelled at him, just because, as you say, the allegations such as they were was effectively that he was somewhat ungentlemanly and a bit pushy on a date. And I think that was one of the things about the whole Me Too movement, which became really quite sinister and undermining not just of men and their right such as it might be to be ungentlemanly of course not but of as Ella says women's ability to live with sexual freedom and to conduct themselves um in that in that world without need to be somehow kind of sheltered and I think if any as you say the kind of desire for vengeance is really interesting of course another comedian who felt the brunt of the Me Too movement was Louis C.K. Um, effectively people coming out and saying that um, he had masturbated in front of them apparently that's what he's into I mean if you look into the cases it seems he's more perv than predator but nevertheless seems like it was an unpleasant experience um, for the people involved again he really went through the ringer his a film that he was putting out was cancelled um fx who he had his sitcom with cut all ties with him hbo i think i'm right in saying deleted all of his previous comedy specials so there was a really serious kind of um knock to his career and yet again around the same time as aziz ansari has started to do stand up again and there's this response from me too sites which is to say oh so we've we've been wrecking men's careers have we which is a strange position because on the first hand, there was real material consequences to a lot of these allegations, a lot of the witch hunt environment. But also that was their aim from the outset. (laughs) So if anything, they're claiming that they haven't been able to deliver on what they were trying to do, which is to kind of mete out justice when no one else can. It's just striking that that kind of lust for vengeance is still completely undimmed in a way. I think the key point that I take away from this is, and why I'm so against the Me Too movement and continuously critical of it, is that we cannot have a serious discussion about sexual harassment anymore. You know, a very serious issue, which does still happen no way near at the rate that people claim. 
but you 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 can't talk about it anymore because it means as tom says sexual misconduct it means jokes it means leering it means wolf whistling it doesn't mean a serious affront to a woman's freedom which is what it should mean if we really want to be serious about making life better for women and more free we've got to ditch this me too movement which is only interested as tom said in vengeance and in play acting at being serious about sexual harassment spike content will always be free with no paywall and no subscriptions is contributions from listeners like you, which allow us to keep producing our fearless, forthright journalism. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Last week, Labour MP Dawn Butler accused celebrity chef Jamie Oliver of cultural appropriation. She took issue with his new punchy jerk rice product, saying that the appropriation of Jamaican culture has to stop. Soon after, another Labour MP, Rosie Duffield, back to student boycott of a local cocktail bar. According to Duffield, the Tokyo Tea Rooms in Canterbury crossed the line from cultural appreciation to cultural appropriation. The term cultural appropriation has been bandied about on, around on campuses for a number of years now, but has the safe space now taken over the Westminster bubble and beyond? I think it's certainly clear that in the, as you say, the two stories that you just mentioned show the fact that it is on some level taking over politics. I mean, the idea of Dawn Butler, who is Labour's equalities lead, you know, dealing with a lot of very serious subjects, would take a break from the summer recess just to denounce Jamie Oliver because he didn't follow the recipe for jerk necessarily, that you can't technically jerk rice. I mean, it was a a kind of um, cooking disagreement on some level, but um, is really quite strange. And I think speaks to the fact that whilst for a very long time when we were having out the argument about the kind of spread of identity politics on campus, competitive offence taking, something which I think cultural appropriation does slot into that category, people would always say, why are you so obsessed with this? Is this just a kind of niche? Is this just something which it's just about crazy blue-haired students who are who are always going to be a bit mad, you might as well just leave them to it. I think those two cases in particular shows that this kind of politics, this kind of virtue signalling does seem to have some sort of appeal in broader politics to the point where you have very senior people actually making these arguments. Um, and I think it just, to me, just speaks to something about how kind of degraded our political discussion has got on some level, that people of, you know, serious responsibility, high esteem, representatives of their constituents, would feel the need to engage in pretty lame campus-style culture warring in order to try and get some attention and some retweets, when in the case of Dawn Butler, she's got plenty of other more serious things to worry about, it seems like. I think this is the point, it's that these claims of cultural appropriation, when you look at them closely you see that they're completely hollow so jamie's jerk rice pouch or whatever it is (laughs) has no effect on jamaican people Mm. i don't think they're being force fed it i also don't think as far as i know he's marketing it using racist tropes it's just rice it's just jamie oliver's new crappy product and you can say oh it's annoying like in that sometimes i do about plastic paddies being irish but to politicize it and to claim that it is actually affecting jamaican people which is this that that's what cultural appropriation is it's about saying it's taking something away from the people who originally own the culture um that is obviously not the case i mean the tokyo tea rooms thing is really interesting uh, is at Canterbury Christchurch University and the students are boycotting it on the basis of it has white girls dressing up as geishas. It's a kind of themed night. 
it looks pretty fun. People enjoy it. It's pretty successful. And because you're not allowed to have white girls dressing up as geishas, it's going to potentially be shut down. I think that's a really sad point if we're saying that you have to stick within your culture. I mean, my culture is relatively boring. (laughs) Being white isn't the most fantastically interesting and varied thing out there. I'd like to be, you know, I'd, I'd like to feel that I could take a leaf out of some other cultures books and have a mess around especially with fashion especially with food especially with these things that shouldn't be political i know we don't want to go back to shepherd's pie i mean that's just the last <laughs> thing. but i think it's interesting because also there's the cultural appropriation discussion which again i think it's so strange that you have um you know would-be leaders of this country um <laughs> wading into but there is something in which a lot of the in many respects a lot of the kind of identity politics concerns are seeping into various different areas of life um and that's something which i think we should be really quite concerned about i mean even if you think about something like the kind of google memo thing a couple of years ago that guy james damore who wrote this memo which was uh, supposedly about what him effectively making his arguments as to why he thought that women were underrepresented in um subjects like coding and in various sort of internet companies um and he was obviously sacked off the back back of this and again it was that kind of thing was like this is almost like a very campus style argument someone says something reasonable but heretical and then suddenly there's this move to get rid of them. There was this um, Twitter storm a few months back at the New York Times where one of their columnists and editors, Bari Weiss, met, had this tweet on the internet which was referring to um, a Japanese-American figure skater called Mirai Nagasu, I think, who had just um, won gold at the, at the Winter Olympics and had pulled off this amazing feat. And she tweeted something which was kind of quoting from Hamilton saying, immigrants, we get the job done. I didn't get the reference, but nevertheless, people took this as racism. And then there was all this stuff coming out published, which was basically the internal discussions of loads of people who work at the New York Times saying things like, I'm pretty sure that tweet dehumanized this figure skater just as much as internment did. And there is a kind of level of the safe space really is spreading. Is it just a case of people are, you know, graduating out of the out of the safe space and then getting into these jobs is it the case that you've just got institutions which feel like because this movement such as it has has the moral high ground they feel the need to genuflect to it i don't really know but nevertheless i think the argument that we could would some people would try to make against us previously that you're worrying over nothing this is young people being idiots um this is just kind of tumbler discussion that you shouldn't be um trying to take up is the fact that it is permeating on some level of political discussion workplaces and all the rest of it and i think we're probably gonna start to see more and more of this and and one thing that's uh, one thread that's really common even if mps are only just starting to use terms like cultural appropriation is the basically the low regard for freedom and free speech that seems to be shared by both mps and um and students alike i mean if you think about all the plans that MPs have to restrict speech on the internet, or you think um, my favourite is uh, Antoinette Sandback, who called the police on one of her constituents over disagreement about Brexit. I mean, these (laughs) kinds of... You shouldn't laugh, though, because that's... It's like... Terrifying. As Tom says, it is terrifying. And you, you know, rightly or wrongly, you do have... MPs certainly aping the kind of ridiculous actions of university students. And you think, hang on a minute, these people don't just have control of the campus square, they run the country, they make the laws. So it's not something to just sort of roll your eyes about, actually, it is getting quite dangerous. That's a scary thought. 
Just thinking about how wider society, adult society, even though you are an adult at university, is aping university students is the whole pronouns debate. Well, Tom, you wrote an article for The Sun on this um, about how I think it's Edinburgh University mm. is, uh, you know, now bringing in pronoun badges. One of the amazing things that I read in that article is that HSBC has now got a list of pronouns. Oh, yeah, they, they were ahead of, they're about a year ahead of Edinburgh on this. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I had a look at their list and they've got, I mean, this is a bank, right? You, you've got to have your, you've got to be specific when you're coming to get a loan and some of the listed pronouns are per for person as opposed to your dog going to hsbc and trying to open an account mer for mystery and misc for miscellaneous how can you be a miscellaneous bank user i mean it just shows that uh, that is ridiculous i'm slightly worried about what forms of id they're accepting (laughs) (laughs) someone's turning up in my name pronoun badge apparently that's what you need Somehow we've managed to get through this conversation without asking each other's pronouns. <laughs> Mine's mystery, mirror, forevermore. You'll have to guess. <laughs> you and HSBC will never know my pronoun. <laughs> I want to go for something military, like captain, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Spike Podcast. We'll be back next week with more. In the meantime, you can visit spiked-online.com for your daily dose of Spike content. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.